Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a typed outline of today's message, you can go to the show notes or the details page. As we get closer to Christmas, we are going into a different spot in our Choices series with asking a question, are we focused more on a holiday or has it become a hollow day? And now here's Tom Claiborne with his message called Holiday or Hollow Day. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 16. All right, our theme today, our question today, and this is the final message in our uh, series called Choices. Holiday or hollow day? And I don't even think that's a word, the second one. (laughs) But uh, that's the one we don't want, this means. Studying various holidays from around the world (laughs) can make you smile and laugh, and sometimes scratch your head, quite honestly. If you've ever sometimes get on the computer and punch in weird holidays around the world, strange holidays or something like that. For instance, in South Korea, you can celebrate celebrate what they call Alphabet Day, and they like it so well they have it two days of the year. In Taiwan, you can participate in Tombs Sweeping Day. I guess they all get their brooms and go to the cemetery. I don't get it, but they do that. Cuba celebrates National Rebelliousness Day, and it lasts three days. What else do you expect from communists? (laughs) In Bolivia, in May, they have a, a festival called Punch Your Neighbor Festival. Good for community relations, I think. I'm not sure. Punch Your Neighbor Festival. And even if you'll look up uh, American holidays in December, I didn't realize there's one for almost every day. December 1st is Eat a Red Apple Day. All right? December 5th, Bathtub Party Day. We will not ever celebrate that as a church, okay? All right, today, December 12th, (laughs) there are several holidays all on today, December 12th. This is National Dingaling Day. This is National Poinsettia Day. This is Gingerbread House Day. And finally, it's the Festival of Unmentionable Thoughts. So I will not mention them, okay? But if you manage to get through today, tomorrow, December 13th, is National Ice Cream Day and National Cocoa Day. So I guess you eat cold ice cream and hot cocoa. (laughs) Makes sense, right? But then December 31st is, and I do like this one, December 31st is actually Make Up Your Mind Day. And I get it, New Year's Eve, New Year, all that kind of stuff. Well, I say, why don't we call today, this morning, Sunday, December 12th, Make Up Your Mind Day, where each of us looks at ourselves, looks at our heart, and we make up our mind about what we're going to do with God and how we're going to serve Him. You see, you and I can determine today how the rest of our Christmas season is going to go. Now, no, we cannot stop things from happening that we don't, have hap- what we don't want to have happen. We can't stop bad things and we can't control things, but we can control 
what kind of meaning Christmas has for us with decisions we make today. We can determine today if we're going to enjoy or resent or merely tolerate the next two weeks. We can decide today. So how can we make Christmas a true holiday instead of a hollow day? I want to suggest four guidelines. Number one, don't forget what a holiday is. And again, four suggestions are on your, your main, four main points on your outline. Don't forget what a holiday is. Now, some of you, I, 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 I just know you and you know me well enough, you're thinking, why is he using the word holiday for Christmas? I thought he was one of these Merry Christmas kind of guys. Okay, we'll get to that theme later on. But first of all, I don't want us to forget what a holiday actually is. It's interesting how that word is used around the world. In much of Europe, that word simply means vacation. I can remember several times in Europe being asked randomly by people, oh, are you, are you here on holiday? Because that's the way they refer to it. Our son-in-law is back visiting his family in France right now. And probably someone is asking him, oh, you're on holiday from the States. But the idea there is it's simply time off from work, holiday. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's how many Americans view holidays as well. It's time off work, even if it's called Memorial Day or Christmas or whatever. But if you look at a dictionary, there are a number of definitions given for the word holiday. Now, one is what I just said, a day of freedom from labor. But another definition in the dictionary is actually a religious festival, a holiday, a holy day. But also another one, a day set aside by law or custom for the suspension of business, usually in commemoration of some event. That's the important thing to remember. <laughs> One more worldwide holiday. The country of Uruguay in South America has a holiday called, and this is a mouthful, the Day of Disembarkment of the 33 Orientals. Go figure. Imagine you know, saying, hey, did you get my Day of Disembarkment of the 33 Orientals card yet? Hey, how about you? can you come to our house Friday night for the day of disembarkment for the 33 Orientals? <laughs> now, the point is, a holiday commemorates a specific significant event, and apparently something happened in Uruguay when 33 uh, Orientals came to Uruguay and did something. So my summary of this is this, of everything I've said. A holiday is a day, and write this in on your outline, a day intended to be special and different as a time of remembrance and honor. A true holiday is a day intended to be special and different as a time of remembrance and honor. In other words, we take time off from other things primarily to help us focus on the purpose of that day. That's what a holiday is. Matter of fact, the English word holiday literally comes from the words holy day. Holy day. In other words, we take time off from everything else to make a day special and holy. Holy in the Bible meant set apart. We're setting apart that day. All right, in Deuteronomy 16, we read about the three primary Jewish festivals. God was really into celebrations. He's done it all through the Bible, and heaven is pictured that way. But even in the Old Testament, even when they're wandering in the wilderness and everything, there were festivals they were to hold. God wanted them to have celebrations, parties, if you will. 
They were holy days ordained by God for his people. And he says, you should celebrate these if you're really going to follow me. But what we notice in Deuteronomy 16 is four characteristics of what a true holiday is in God's thinking. Number one, in any true holiday, especially in the Old Testament festivals, there was praise. Deuteronomy 16.1 introduces a phrase that keeps showing up in Deuteronomy 16. Verse 1 says, Observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Abib he brought you out of Egypt by night. Verse 10 and verse 11, different feast. It says, then celebrate the feast of weeks to the, here's the phrase again, to the Lord your God by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. Verse 11, and rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. Verse 15, for seven days celebrate the feast to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands and your joy will be complete. So in each feast, God was to be the center of attention. Praise for God was what it ultimately was about. Each holy day recognized something specific that God had done in history. He rescued them from Egypt, so he says, so I want you to celebrate the Passover as a holiday. He gave them the law, and he gave them good harvest. So he says, I want you to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost. And then he protected them in the wilderness. So he says, I want you to celebrate with the Feast of Tabernacles. And they literally, and Jews, Orthodox Jews still do this to, the day, to this day during that time period, they live in tents for a certain period of time to remember the time in, in the wilderness. It's all about the Lord your God and what the Lord your God has done. The festivals or holidays were an open acknowledgement of what God had done. They were saying, every time they gathered for those things, God, you're amazing. You're amazing. So this season, when you and I see a manger, let's say, you know what? God's incredible. And when we see a lighted star, let's say, God, you're incredible. And when we sing a song like Joy to the World, let's say, you know, God, you're incredible. Let's give willing and unashamed praise to a generous God, a miracle-working God, and a God who sent his Son. That's what a holiday is about. But biblical festivals also had a second characteristic, and this is very important of holidays today. Remembering. Remembering. Holidays are intended to help us remember something specific. Passover is probably the most classic among the Jews. In Exodus chapter 12 Starting in verse uh, 24, I think. Do we have that? 24 to 27. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord your God, the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. Passover was to be a holy day, a holiday for Israel, a day of remembering. So let's remember things this Christmas. Let's remember God sending his son as our Passover lamb. Let's remember all that God did for centuries to prepare for that one night 
when he brought his son. Biblical festivals are about remembering. Thirdly, biblical festivals were about joy. Joy. Deuteronomy 16, I want you to notice again as I read these verses how often celebrate or rejoice or joy or joyful come up. All right? 16, verse 10 and 11. Then celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessing the Lord your God has given you. And re rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. Verse 13, celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered and produced your threshing floor and your wine press. Verse 14, be joyful at your feast. Verse 15, for Seven days celebrate the feast of the Lord your God uh, at the place the Lord will choose. And at the end it says, and your joy will be complete. So the festival was all about joy. God was demonstrating something very important that sometimes Christians today forget. God was demonstrating that you and me as human beings need festivity. And we were created for laughter and we were created for celebration. And God fully intends for his people who really know him to have joy and to smile. <laughs> Folks, we need joy in our life physically and emotionally and spiritually. And in setting up the festivals, God was saying, I want you to, I want to drill this home. You need joy. You need joy. See, as Christians, we have so much more reason than the Jews of that time period to celebrate because Jesus came into our world and he became like us and he took our punishment as the ultimate Passover lamb and he rose up from the dead and he's still alive. We have way more reason to celebrate and have parties than the Old Testament Jews. Of all people, we who know forgiveness in Christ should be able to laugh and enjoy life Enjoy worship, and yes, throw a fun party. So let's be joyful this Christmas amidst the stress and amidst the fear and amidst the grief and the illness and the separation and all those other things that are going to come in a broken world. God says in verse 15, For seven days celebrate the feast of the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose, and your joy will be complete. The biblical festivals also have one more factor, and that is giving. Giving was a central part of their festivals. Verse 10 says, Then celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God. How? By giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. Then also down to verse 16 and 17. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles. And notice this phrase, no man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must give a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Folks, the idea is that we are so overwhelmed with gratitude at God's generosity that we can't wait to offer something back to him. We can't wait. <laughs> Key phrases, verse 10, in proportion. Verse 17, in proportion. In other words, has God blessed you at all? Well, give back in proportion to the way he has blessed you. Verse 16 again, no one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. So I ask you this morning, has God been generous to you? Has God been generous to you? Has God blessed you? Let's be generous with God and others this season. 
but let's not dare appear before the Lord empty-handed. Four characteristics of holidays as ordained by the Lord God. You could not properly celebrate any of these holidays if you did not do all four of those things. You were not, you were not honoring God if you didn't do all four of those things. So let's not forget what a holiday is. Now, to my point earlier, if these four things are true in our holidays, including Christmas, then I would have no problem saying happy holidays this season. <laughs> if those four things were true, I have no problem saying happy holidays. But unfortunately, happy holidays has been kidnapped and misused by our culture for some very silly and even sinister reasons. And that brings me to my second main point. Don't be afraid of Christmas, and I've got it in quotation marks because I'm saying, don't be afraid of saying, using, writing, or publicizing the word Christmas. The word literally means Christ mass, Christ worship of Christ. That word itself, Christmas, has been in Europe, around in Europe, for centuries. Some say maybe even the word Christmas was being used by the year A.D. 354, 1,700 years ago. It's been around our country through most of our history. It's been a legal, official holiday since the 1800s in the United States of America. It has been an important part of our American culture, both religious and secular, for a very long time. But around the year, like 20, 21 years ago, around 2000, and this was heavy from 2000 to about 2005 was its peak, I think, the high priests of political correctness in this country began a war on that pleasant, non-threatening word that was silly and shameful and paranoid and baseless. The fact is, there is no logical, moral, religious, or legal reason why the word Christmas should, not, should be censored or forbidden anywhere in American society, including government and including public schools. To do so is unnatural, it's intolerant, and it's discriminatory, and it has frightening parallels to the 1930s Nazi Germany when they forbade the word. As I said, 2005 was probably the peak of this censorship. Virtually every major store that year, because I checked, I was talking about this for a message in 2005, and I checked. I got all catalogs and looked online and walked in stores. Virtually every major store chain in America censored the word Christmas that year. It was holiday trees, holiday decor, holiday treats, holiday sale, holiday this, holiday that. But fortunately, after about 2005, there was a shift backward, and you don't see that near as much right now with most uh, people. Um, most people regained their senses, and Christmas came back. So what changed that? Well, I think what changed that after 2005, 2006, along in there, is that ordinary concerned citizens spoke up and said, stop it. <laughs> this is silly, it's baseless, and it's un-American. Businesses, uh, likewise, did not want to lose a bunch of customers. And I hope also that many uh, realized the whole anti-Christmas crusade was paranoid and ridiculous. But I fear that with the current cancel culture nonsense that the anti-Christmas movement is still popular with some anti-history and anti-God people. But the good news is, whereas in 2005, I sadly I remember getting on the websites of all of our local schools around here, and all of them said winter break that year. I think it was 2005. And I sent a friendly, polite 
email to, I know, our own school board in, in Adams County Schools about my concern about that. Uh, but I checked this Friday, two days ago, both Eastern website and the Ohio Valley School District both said Christmas break. <laughs> um, common sense has returned. Um, let me close this section with a, 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 an important comment from actor and TV commentator Ben Stein, who said this back in 2008 when all this was going on. He's Jewish, okay? Listen to what Ben Stein writes. He goes, I am a Jew, and every single one of my ancestors was Jewish. And it does not bother me even a little bit when people call those beautiful lit up bejeweled trees Christmas trees. I don't feel threatened. I don't feel discriminated against. That's what they are, Christmas trees. He says, it doesn't bother me a bit when people say Merry Christmas to me. I don't think they're sliding me or getting ready to put me in a ghetto. In fact, I kind of like it. It shows that we are all brothers and sisters celebrating this happy time of year. It doesn't bother me at all that there is a major scene on display at the key intersection near my beach house in Malibu. If people want a crash, it's just fine with me, as is the menorah a few hundred yards away. He goes, I don't like getting pushed around for being a Jew, and I don't think Christians like getting pushed around for being Christians. I think people who believe in God are sick and tired of getting pushed around, period. <laughs> I have no idea where the concept came from that America is an explicitly atheist country. I can't find it in the Constitution, and I don't like it being shoved down my throat. End of quote. Thank you, Jewish Ben Stein. So Merry Christmas, Ben Stein. Merry Christmas to your boss. Merry Christmas to your restaurant server. Merry Christmas to your teacher. And Merry Christmas to our governing officials. Merry Christmas. It's a very loving greeting. So don't be afraid of Christmas. It's a nice word. It's not mean. And if we're going to have happy, holy days instead of hollow days, don't be afraid of Christmas. But thirdly, if we're going to have happy days, uh, holy days instead of ho hollow days, don't miss the symbols. Don't miss the symbols. I want you to turn over to Matthew 2, and we're going to look at something there in a few moments. You know, have you noticed in the Bible that God loves symbols? God loves symbols. He loves object lessons. He loves memorials. The book of Genesis is dotted throughout with altars. And every altar that he would tell them to build was be so that when people would see it 10 years later, 100 years later, 1,000 years later, that altar would remind them of something God had done. God likes symbols. When they crossed the Jordan River, uh, Joshua had the people stack up stones because they knew that in future years someone would say, why are those stones stacked up by the Jordan River? Oh, let me tell you about how God parted the water of the Jordan River. The Passover meal was all about symbols being grounded in historical facts and the symbols helped them explain the facts of what God had done at the Passover to their children and grandchildren. In the same way, I want to suggest that we can take the sometimes overused symbols of Christmas and use them to point people to Jesus and the true meaning of Christmas. Now, on your outline are five different symbols, and uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not saying these five things are all ordained in the Bible. What I'm saying is they're all five things that are already in use during the Christmas season that you and I can turn into an op opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Number one, Lights. Lights. There are plenty of biblical connections with the subject of light. In John chapter 10, verse 22, we read about the Feast of Dedication, also known as the Festival of Lights, 
also known as Hanukkah. Okay? It's, Hanukkah was around for, for the time of Christ. John 10, 22. And Jesus goes to Jerusalem during Hanukkah. Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, was, comm was commemorating the recapture of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem from the Syrians in 165 B.C., the Maccabean Revolt. And what they did, uh, the Jews were so thrilled to have the Temple Mount back under their control where they could worship. So they cleansed the Temple, they rededicated the Temple, and then they decided to have this festival that was going to last eight days. The problem was on their menorah, uh, where they were going to light all the lights, um, they only had enough oil for one day. But the Jewish legend goes that they lit them anyway, and the candles burnt for the entire eight days on one day's oil there. Well, in John 10... It was during the midst of Hanukkah, where Jesus had come to Jerusalem, that Yeshua, Jesus, the light of the world, stood in the temple area during Hanukkah and declared, I and the Father are one. I think that was the intentional timing on Jesus' part. I think it was intentional of Jesus to go to Jerusalem during Hanukkah for the feast and declare that he was God. Two chapters earlier, Jesus had said this in John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. At Jesus' birth, Luke 2 tells us that the glory of the Lord literally lit up the sky. Angels were appearing to shepherds. So I say this season, let's string up the lights and let's celebrate the holy days of Christmas. Number two. Another symbol that's important this season is a star. Matthew 2, we read where this whole image of the star came up and why we put stars up in December. Matthew 2, verse 2. Magi come from the east and they ask, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Verses 9 and 10. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So friends, when we see a star lit on a Christmas tree this season, or up on Rankin Hill, or over our own porch, we can remember that we have a God who can manipulate the stars and planets anytime He chooses. So when you see a star, think about how awesome and incredible and powerful our God is. And Jesus in Revelation twenty-two sixteen 16 said, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The star points to Jesus. Number three, another symbol of the Christmas uh, season is gifts. Now, <laughs> I admit that this part is way out of hand in many ways, and for the most part, there's a lot of obligation buying going on instead of giving. But the fact is, the giving principle has a clear biblical origin. In Matthew 2, verse 11, right after the two star verses, it says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. Giving. Something else that we're reminded of in the giving of Christmas. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says this about God our Father. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. 
And then this, of course, very familiar words in John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God is the ultimate giver. When you give a gift this season, when you receive a gift this season, let's celebrate the fact that God outgives everybody. Number four, this one, I bet if you haven't tuned in at all, you'll probably tune in on this one. And I'm not saying God endorses Christmas trees, but number four, a symbol of the season is an evergreen tree. All right? Now, there's only speculation, I admit, from history about the origin of our Christmas tree uh, and this custom. Some say it goes back to England. Some say it goes back to Martin Luther, specifically, and his family in Germany. I don't know which is true, uh, but the point is, I want to show you a verse in Hosea chapter 14. And do not leave today and say, Tom said Hosea 14.8 says, uh, or endorses Christmas trees. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying there's a symbol we can use here. Hosea 14.8 says, Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. This is God speaking to them. I will answer him and care for him. I am like a green pine tree. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Your fruitfulness comes from me, God is telling them. In other words, God is like a healthy, strong evergreen. God says, I'm powerful and I'm life-giving, like giving the life to the branches. Hebrew scholar Theodore Latish writes of this verse in Hosea 14.8 of God. He says, he and he alone is as a green fir tree, the cypress, an evergreen noted for the durability of its wood, practically immune against decay. Its wood was used for the floorings and doors of the temple. A fit symbol of life and vigor. The Lord, he says, and he alone gives life and strength. From him alone is our fruit found. If there is any good in me, O Lord, I owe it all to thee. Having such a Lord, what need is there of idols? In other words, God is saying to them in Hosea 14, 8, comparing himself to this green ever tree, uh, evergreen tree, I am unchanging and I am faithful. So no, God is not endorsing a Christmas tree in my living room necessarily, but when I see a green tree, I can say, you know what? God is life-giving, and God is lasting, and God is durable, because he is God. Well, finally, a fifth symbol of this season is, as you know, a candy cane. Now, this one has gotten twisted a little bit because we've made them all different kind of colors, and that was not the case originally. Now, there are a lot of theories about the origin of the, of the candy cane. I will not vouch for any of them as being the one, but there is a story about a candy maker in Indiana uh, who supposedly wanted an object lesson. Now, we don't know if he's the first one that thought of him, but he, at least he used it this way. He wanted an object lesson to tell people about Jesus. So he viewed this stick that initially was pure white, and he said that represents the virgin birth of Jesus, the sinless nature of Jesus whiteness, purity. He goes, I want hard candy, not soft candy, because Jesus is the solid rock. He said, we're going to do a hook on the top of it, and it'll look like a cane, like a shepherd's staff, because Jesus, in John 10, is called the good shepherd. Turn that cane upside down, and it forms a J for Jesus. And finally, the red stripes were put on the white uh, stick to symbolize Jesus, uh, and by his stripes, Isaiah 53, we are healed. Now, folks, whether that's a true th reason for the first candy cane or not, the point is we can take a candy cane and we can tell our child or our grandchild those very things and introduce them to Jesus. The red stripes and his blood shed for us. He's our shepherd. He's going to walk with us no matter what happens in life. 
and he is pure and he wants to make us pure. So don't miss the symbols of this season. I say happy holy days to you. Let's not let the season become hollow. But here's the final one, and this ties it all together. Number four, if we're going to make sure this season is a holy day instead of a hollow day, don't lose your focus. Don't lose your focus. The focus is Christ. Christmas, as I said, that word itself means Christ mass or Christ worship. When we forget this basic underlying fact, Christmas becomes very empty and hollow. And it's become that to many, many people. But in the Bible birth accounts, Jesus was always the focus. I want you to look in Luke chapter 1 really quickly, in 1 and 2, at some examples of how Jesus, it was all about Jesus. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 30, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Notice how Jesus is the focus. Verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. It was about Jesus. Later on, you have Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Now, his son, John, has been, baptized, or has been born at this point, and Jesus now has been born by the time he writes this. And Zechariah says this, or this is right before the birth of Jesus. Zechariah writes this, chapter 1, verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Guess who that is in the house of the servant David? As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant. That's all about Jesus. John the Baptist doesn't even mention his own son who's just been born until verse 76 because it was all about Jesus and not necessarily his own son. Luke 2, when the angels appear to the shepherds, verse 10, it says, The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Jesus was the message. Jesus was the point. Verse 16 and 17, the shepherds go. It says, They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. It was all about Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Maybe we can coin a new phrase. He's the reason for the season. <laughs> he is, is the point. So let's remember why we do all this. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever, whatever symbols, whatever the gifts, whatever we're doing for the season. So I ask you, will Jesus be the focus of your celebration this year? Will he be the main focus? Colossians 3, 17 says this, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let's keep our manger scenes prominent. And let's read the Bible accounts of his birth in our home. Let's enjoy Christ-centered Christmas music. Let's be quiet enough to ponder like Mary did. Let's give to someone who cannot repay us and exchange with us. Let's encourage a lonely person. Let's take advantage of worship opportunities. Let's create happy holy days and not let them become hollow. 
and lifeless. We can determine when we leave this building today what kind of two weeks we're going to have this season. So what determines your Christmas attitude? What determines your Christmas attitude? Is it the mall or the manger? Is it busyness or the baby? We overdo business. Even Christians over, overdo busyness this season. What determines your Christmas attitude? Is it Santa or the Savior? Is it holidays or holy days? Is it sorrow over who is absent this year at Christmas or a deep abiding joy over the eternal life and hope that we have no matter what our circumstances are? Bottom of your page is the question we ultimately all need to answer today. What will you find this Christmas? Well, it depends on where your heart is. It depends on where your heart is. So where's your heart? As I said earlier, this is, we're, we named this Make Up Your Mind Day. <laughs> so let's you and me make up our mind as we sing this song this morning about what kind of season we're going to have and whether Jesus Christ is going to be primarily honored in our home or is it going to be all the stuff? <laughs> Where's your heart going to be uh, this season? We're going we're to be singing the song that the choir opened with, uh, that song where the Jews were crying out for the Messiah to come. Well, we sing it now as Christians. We're asking him for him to come back, and he promises he will do that. So let's prepare ourselves for if he chooses, and it's his choice, not ours, uh, to come back this Wednesday. We can say, well, uh, when Revelation, whatever it says, well, we might have just misinterpreted it. He can come back Wednesday if he wants. <laughs> he can come back a year from now, he can come back 10 years from now, or he can take you or me out of this life, from this life, this week. That can happen too. And we need to be ready uh, to meet him. So as we sing this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Let's think about where we are in relationship to him, where we need to be, what we need to change, what we need to get in order, how we need to serve him, what we need to do. Let's stand, let's sing, let's think about our heart, our life, our changes we need to make. Let's make this a meaningful season starting today with making the right choice. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.